All right, we are back um, <laughs> with uh, the the Mexican Revolution. I was thinking of calling this uh, episode the downfall because we kind of had the peak last uh, last episode with Zapata and Villa taking Mexico City, and now it's all downhill for them. It's a it's a long downhill. I think the downhill started earlier once the revolutionaries start fighting each other. Yeah, that's a big it's a big problem. <laughs> it's a big problem yeah. in revolutions. So we have Carranza forces led by Obregón yeah. uh, fighting against Villa and uh, Zapata. And I think you made the point or one of us made the point in the last episode that Zapata's army is not really a battle force. Yeah. And that's why Obregón was able to defeat uh, the Zapatistas at Puebla in 1915. Yes. So Gilly talks about this maneuver. He does it. He's able to do things because he knows Zapata is not a battle force. So he does a pretty risky maneuver. He divides his army in two, sends them on two different routes across this. He Gilly calls it the nearly impassable Malinche Mountains. Um, and they both hit Puebla from two sides. Uh, Zapata himself is not in Puebla anymore. He's withdrawn to his Morelos uh, location. Uh, and his garrison was under the command of some late, you know, Johnny-come-latelys to the cause. Okay. So they're not diehard Zapatistas. They're more like defectors. And they made nice with some old Huerta uh, jerks, you know, <laughs> crooks. So they were already facing protests for making nice with these former regime criminals. They, and the whole, so Gilly says that these protests and the way they behaved debilitated the whole social base for the defense of Puebla. So Puebla, they, even, even as inferior as Zapata's army and, and tactics were for this kind of warfare to Obregón, uh, they, it fell much faster than was expected it was it fell in basically a day and gilly says for the first time a peasant army had to do formal battle not with the passive corrupt forces of the old regime mm. but with an army representing one wing of the revolution that promised a glittering program of reforms to the workers and peasants so that's a very different proposition mm -hmm. um once they take puebla obregón's got an open road to mexico city and he's got no intention of uh going and fighting Zapata in a guerrilla war. He's he's uh, he's pretty savvy, this Obregón, in terms of military logic. Mm -hmm. So his plan is uh, take Mexico City, and then we're going to deal with Pancho Villa. So Mexico City falls without a fight. Zapata's gone, Villa's gone, the ministers of their government have left. And he doesn't also, he, it's not like the Paris Commune, where when he takes the capital he needs to crush the revolution uh, as gilly says he's not he didn't come here to butcher the masses but to grant them concessions for his military victory dependent on the partial incorporation of the enemy's program so uh one of the first fruits of this sorry were you going to say something no go ahead one of the first fruits of this is the agrarian reform law of january 6th uh, 1915 it's written by luis cabrera who's been writing stuff during the whole revolution and the law is if you have the deeds you get the land if you can't produce the deeds you can still acquire the government will acquire some nearby land for you 
the idea is not collective land, but small holders again. Uh, Carranza says it's not to revive the old communities, but just to give land to the landless. But if, of course, the real effect is the Diaz uh, oligarchy transfers their land to the constitutionalist generals, right? <laughs> right? So that's like the big transfer of land that happens. <laughs> but the declaration is we're pro-land reform. So there's no need to take sides. If you're land reform or if you're for land reform, you don't have to. The only game in town is no longer Zapata and Villa. The game is now you're going to have to find some other reason to dislike Carranza, right? Um, it's enough, Gilly says, to attract one section of the peasantry and neutralize the other. So it weakens Pancho Villa's base and it confines Zapata's influence to Morelos from now on. Remember, Zapata had influence throughout the South and uh, after this agrarian reform law, uh, the only people who have that, uh, you know, real devotion to Zapata now are, are going to be in the state of Morelos. Villa, Villa's reaction to this is interesting, actually. It really, it is a kind of a principled reaction in the sense that he says, well, the people will benefit from these laws, whoever has passed them. So even when his worst enemy passes a law, he's sort of like, well, it's the right law. So, um, Meanwhile, Obregón also does some very, very intelligent things that Villa and Zapata didn't think of. So uh, the people in Mexico City have been suffering from the war, um, lots of deprivation, disruption. So he sets up relief stations all over the capital to distribute food, clothing and cash relief. And he uses the unions to organize it. So everybody uh, from the unions is involved in this army, uh, you know, under the army auspices, uh, distributing aid. So it's like, really, the unions would never want to refuse helping with that. And in the process, he starts their co-optation to his right. side, right? <clears throat> uh, right? It's very quick. He, after he takes, the, it's underway by February 8th, uh, 8, 1915. So he's uh, he's been, he hasn't been in the capital for very long before he does it. And the way he gets the money is he taxes the rich, merchants, priests, and business owners. And when some of these people refuse to pay, he puts them in prison. So again, credibility with the workers, right? He conscripts some of them. <laughs> there's a it's a kind of a funny and um, I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting story, Dave. Tell me what you think. Okay. There's a bunch of priests that organize to say we can't fight, uh, we can't be conscripted because we're sick. We we all have ill health. So he orders uh, he orders uh, medical examinations for all of them, and then uh, he says, look, there's 180 of you that pleaded ill health. Uh, and only very few of you have a legitimate issue. And by the way, of the 60 of you that uh, have some form of uh, venereal disease, uh, you're nonetheless fit to fight. So you'll be conscripted anyway. And he has that report published that these oh celibate priests are. <laughs> okay, so regardless of whether the story is true or not, he's definitely... Uh, not trying to reach out to conservatives <laughs> he's <laughs> obviously trying to win over people who the, hate the working class and the the revolutionary groups yeah as for the conservatives you can wait and uh if you don't like it just imagine <laughs> how much less you would like zapata <laughs> and via exactly 
So Obregón also, the taxations that he orders are not, he doesn't exempt uh, foreigners. So he's getting ready to tax, uh, to collect taxes from the Americans. And Carranza steps in quietly and overrules him. <laughs> he's like, no, no, you're exempt. Uh, mm-hmm. But not before the Americans send a very angry letter to Obregón saying, you know, you can't do this. It's our property. Da, 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 da. And Obregón is just like, oh, sorry, that's not my that's not me. Uh, you want you want to send that letter to Carranza? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the Minister of Foreign Affairs. <laughs> I'm afraid that the foreign affairs is not my remit. I'm, I'm just here to collect taxes, whatever. <laughs> so the electricians union, meanwhile, goes on strike while Obregón is occupying the capital against the Mexican telephone and telegraph company, MT&T. Uh, and MT&T management just refuses to make any concessions. The government, Obregón's government, forces them to come to the table. And he says, you know, come to some kind of an agreement. And management says, no, our agreement is the workers have to surrender everything. So the government nationalizes the company and makes the union leader the general manager of the company. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, so they're not uh, they're not messing around. So. Yeah, Carranza's constitutionalist uh, signed an agreement with the Casa del Obrero Mundial, the the House of the World Worker. So this is the labor union with. Well, I mean, it's like a union I, I, central. It's a co- it's a union of unions kind of thing, right? Yes, and it's fair to call them anarcho syndicalist. They, they were set up during Madero's presidency, and, and they had six uh, armed red battalions, they were called, of workers to fight alongside the constitutionalists. So th- this agreement uh, not only gives them some, some troops, but the side effect, it, it makes Carranza legitimate with the urban workers. So this some is a very... This is a very strong leftist union central. So what it what's the, what did we do when we all get together? We split. So there's a split in the union over this, right? So there's people in the union who are like we can't we can't form red battalions to to uh work with the government to crush the peasants. That's not a working class thing to do. Um so there's a big debate um, on February 8th, 1915, over the Red Battalion uh, issue. So right after, two days after the electricians uh, just won the, took over MT&T. Um, 1,000 workers show up at this kind of, un- the, the main town hall, the kind of center for union activity is this place, St. Bridget's Convent. Um, and a big contingent of them is against the Red Battalion's proposal. Um, so much so that the meeting concludes without even voting. They they kind of agree that they can't, they don't want to have a vote on it. They don't want to show how divisive the issue is. A couple days later, the leadership has a secret meeting with just 67 members thinking maybe they'll get uh, unanimity there. <laughs> and they still have a split and they, and they still can't vote on it. So the leaders decide they're going to shut the union down altogether until Carranza finally wins. <clears throat> So the Red Battalion proposal goes through. Mexico City supplies 9,000 men for the army, mostly through the Casa del Obrero Mundial, or the COM for short. Uh, And the union headquarters becomes uh, what Gilly calls a union-run army recruitment center. 
And there's one union which voted as a block against the Red Battalion's proposal. The electricians. <laughs> they the were MT, like the MT and T guys. Yeah, they were like, "Thank you for nationalizing the company." And uh, no, we're not going to send people to fight for you because we you didn't do that. We did that. So there. Um, but in any case, Obregón's got nine thousand uh, men. He's got Mexico City under control, so much so that he's confident enough to just leave Mexico City altogether undefended um, because he needs to concentrate his forces so Zapata comes he's like whatever let Zapata come to the city what's he gonna do he doesn't know what to do in the city and it, he was right so the Zapatistas do take back the city um, but just like the first time they didn't make anything out of it so you remember there's a classically trained military officer that's like Pancho Villa's second in command Right. His name is <clears throat> Felipe Ángeles. And so Obregón is coming and Ángeles says, listen, Pancho Villa, let's take the oil region in the north, Tampico, the port, and wait for Obregón there. We'll have control of an important resource. We'll have a, a port to resupply and he'll have to fight us in our stronghold. Uh, and Villa says no. Uh, we're going to fight him in central Mexico. Otherwise, he's going to take all of central Mexico. Um, so Angeles says this is a mistake, but that's what Pancho Villa wants to do. Gilly says Pancho Villa's peasant politics left no choice but to seek a military victory before the enemy could increase the size of his forces. So Gilly says basically that Pancho Villa kind of sensed intuitively that the tide has turned and the only way he's, he could see to to get the initiative back would be like some kind of military victory. I, I don't know that he's wrong. I mean, yeah. if you look at a map and look at where Tampico is, mm-hmm. it, it wouldn't be all that difficult for uh, Obregón to isolate via forces in Tampico and then, mm-hmm. you know, run ragged over central and northern and that's Villa's backyard, right? He can't leave yeah. the north undefended. Yeah. And yes, he does feel like he has to fight battles. And that's a bit of a knock on Via, the strategist or tactician. You know, battles are risky things, and he seems to, you know, Love take risk. <laughs> he takes the risk more often than than most. So there were four battles. Uh, between Obregón and Villa, collectively known as the Battle of Chelaya. Celaya, I think. Celaya. Okay, yeah. so that's the largest military engagement ever fought in Latin America. Still? Yeah. Wow. Wow. I didn't know that. Um, so, uh, of these four engagements, the first one was kind of uh, Villa withdrew in good order. Yeah. And the second one was a big loss to Villa. So in the second battle, Obregón walks in with a, a bit more, like they're about evenly matched with about 20,000 men. Um, Pancho Villa has more artillery. Uh, eight, uh, Obregón has 18 artillery pieces. Villa has 36. But Obregón has lots of machine guns and Villa has basically none. Um, Villa has... Uh, 
Mia's side would complain later that they were getting ammunition from the U.S., which was sabotage, defective, unusable, etc. So they were they were kind of paranoid by this point that their supplies were also their supply line was also unreliable. So the estimates for what Via lost in this battle was. 4,000 dead and more than that wounded, uh, and that's the first complete disaster for Pancho Villa's army. Mm. We go to the third battle. Um, it's more than a month long. Uh, it's called the Battle of Trinidad, uh, and Villa normally fights with charging, and and uh, and Obregón had already made him pay for that a lot in the previous two engagements. So Villa fought really defensively, um, the Zapatistas were harrying Obregón's supply line. Uh, they were starting to have ammunition issues, but again, Villa's army broke and retreated to the Battle of Aguas Calientes. Uh, Aguas Calientes was very interesting because Obregón's army was in bad shape. They had supplies for maybe five days. Pancho Villa figured, we're going to turn this around. Um, meanwhile, <laughs> Ángeles kind of looked at the situation and had a meeting with his officers, and he goes, Obregón will win. <laughs> so uh, something about the situation Pancho Villa couldn't get and Ángeles got because I think Ángeles and Obregón really understood each other militarily. So Obregón in, in this bad circumstances attacks on July 10th and uh, succeeds. And now with the haul of ammunition and everything that he gets from Pancho Villa and from the town, uh, he um, he now has four million more rounds of ammunition. So that's yeah. the end of the Battle of Celaya, and it's a decisive engagement between the two of them. Yeah, Obregón seems to have been one of the first to understand that modern field artillery and machine guns had shifted the advantage to the defender. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, virtually at the same time as European generals are still sending human wave attacks and getting their troops slaughtered. Yeah. So he's ahead of the game in, in that respect. And Villa's, uh, you know, decision to attack cost him. Obregón lost his arm in in that battle, too. Yeah, I think it was the second battle. And so so he, whatever he was doing, he was wounded after that. Maybe one of his his subordinates was commanding in the third and fourth engagements. So Felipe Ángeles sinks into depression and leaves for the United States. There's a lot more about... Angeles in Gilly's book, but I didn't read it because it was I was kind of I was so sad when I was finishing the research for this that I didn't I didn't want to follow the careers of everybody that does Gilly make him some kind of, uh, you know, he could have won person. No, no, it's not really like that. It's more like it's more like watching how they kind of compromise their principles and, you know, um, just like how they behave and after the revolution's defeated that I didn't, I don't know. I might read it one day, but I wasn't ready. <laughs> I wasn't ready to do okay. it. Uh, so Carranza, uh, uh, after Villa's defeated, Carranza offers him an amnesty December 15th. He says, listen, you go to the U.S., you move, live there, uh, guarantee your safety, amnesty, no harm, no foul. Most of his commanders accept but he does not. So by the time, so beginning of 1916, Villa's army 
the former northern division of tens of thousands of soldiers is now a couple of hundred guerrillas in the mountains. But but he's back to something he knows, guerrilla warfare. So mm-hmm. he had several bands in the hills. And while, uh, you know, uh, Carranza's troops controlled the towns, Villa controlled the countryside, yeah. except that he no longer had American support. So he'd enjoyed a period where the U.S. Uh, press had called him the earnest boy <laughs> or a rough diamond. Now the Americans are describing him as a bandit. And President Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, now supports Carranza and recognizes his government. So in March of 1916, Villa crossed the border and sacked the town of Columbus, New Mexico. Which is like the first and I think the only time America has ever been <laughs> invaded by Mexico, from Mexico, right? Uh, could be, could be. Well, you, you can imagine the American reaction. So the, the American <laughs> army crosses the border in pursuit, commanded by General Blackjack Pershing. We'll hear more about him many episodes later. Yeah. And uh, Carranza uh, protested strongly. We we yeah. know how he felt about the Americans occupying Veracruz. Well, he stayed true to his principles. He hated American intervention more than he hated Villa. <laughs> Good for him, you know. I, yeah. I, uh, so there, yeah. There's lots to say about the U.S. occupation, the punitive expedition, uh, and I will I will have lots of stories about that in our in our final episode on the revolution. Um, there are some some big names along the American side. Patton is there. You may hear about Patton, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and there are some others, but I uh, they're in Frederick Katz, and and so we'll we'll talk about that uh, next time. Um, meanwhile, uh, the punitive expedition has one goal to get Pancho Villa. They don't get Pancho Villa. <laughs> and, uh, and so they're starting to face guerrilla attacks. Uh, in addition to Carranza's strongly worded memos, people are starting to shoot Americans uh, here and there. And they're not really they're not really they get into this classic thing the americans get into right they don't really know what to do like do we murder everybody in this village do we leave you know do we commit genocide do we give up i don't know so um pancho villa meanwhile you know actually benefits in some ways politically yes. from this he issues a manifesto on october 16th saying mexico for the mexicans he's kind of the, the u.s being there is radicalizing all of mexico against the united states uh, Pancho Villa captures mm-hmm. the city of Torreón again, the third time during the revolution, and Pershing finally orders a withdrawal on January second, nineteen seventeen. They also wanna, they also wanna go intervene in Europe now. They've decided, so they're not gonna, uh, they're not gonna, they don't wanna be occupying, Me- fighting a Mexican guerrilla war while they, while they're trying to intervene in Europe. Um, so there's like a poem or a song they sang, where, <laughs> which became famous at the time. Like, did the Americans think that war was a ballroom dance? Back to their land they went with shame written all over their faces. I never, I haven't looked up the Spanish uh, translation or like Spanish original. I imagine it rhymes in a way that this one doesn't. Um, so why did they? Why did Pancho Villa do this? Uh, why did he raid uh, into the U.S.? Um, and it's interesting because Friedrich Katz is is Pancho Villa's biographer, um, and he actually thinks that 
Villa's raid was trying to force Carranza to back off making some concessions he had planned to make along this along along the lines of accepting U.S. naval bases on the Pacific coast and and other things like that. So uh, I'll I'll uh, I'll have more to say about this too uh, in in the foreign foreigners in the Mexican <coughs> Revolution episode or c- conclusion, but like. Uh, Katz's conclusion is that if that was the goal, it did succeed. Carranza's relationship with the U.S. was very much damaged by this. Uh, and Carranza was, you know, had to take a stand against U.S. intervention. Um, he also stayed new- kept Mexico neutral until the end of World War I. Um, but after the raid into the U.S., Zapata, I mean, Villa became a little more delusional and triumphalist. Um, <clears throat> he made a he wrote a letter to Zapata and said they should they should do a joint attack um okay against uh, i think against the americans so it got a little yeah so so pancho villa's downfall is also happening now um, that might have yeah the the uh, he thinks he's winning again and that might have led him into well probably the worst act of his career uh, on February 5th, 1917, uh, Villa and his army committed an, an atrocity at Namiquipa. Uh, the civilians there had formed a home guard to defend themselves, I imagine. And he took the line, you know, if you're not with me, you're against me. So he's going to punish them for this. The The home guard didn't fight when they learned Villa's men were approaching. They took to the hills. <clears throat> But they left their families behind. Yeah. And Villa uh, apparently rounded up the wives and allowed his soldiers to rape them. Yes. So the rapes in Namiquipa, that story spread through Chihuahua province. And your, so, your first reaction was to doubt whether it had actually happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, you think, like, <laughs> would a revolutionary do this and so on. And so uh, Katz, again, Friedrich Katz's biography of the life and times of Pancho Villa, he says, um, <clears throat> yeah, the home guard was established under Pershing's auspices, right? So they were okay. working under, uh, so there's there's all this stuff, like he's he's uh, n- the inhabitants of Namikipa, you know, were informing, you know, where his arms depots were, and so he, he you know, he decided on this kind of revenge. By February 5th, the Americans had evacuated Chihuahua and Villa felt that he now uh, would have no problems occupying the region. He wanted to go and execute all the Home Guard members. And so they they fled. So this atrocity was committed um, or he, you know, he ordered this atrocity committed. So it says uh, Katz says even some of Villa's commanders were repelled by this act of savagery. Nicolas Fernandez took some of the women under his own protection and ordered his soldiers to shoot anyone who attempted to attack them. Many of the inhabitants of Namikipa had been among Villa's most fervent supporters. But as a result of this act of savagery, um the feelings of people had been hurt forever. So it was like elsewhere, it says popular support. So by, you know, after this, it's like popular support for Villa had begun to erode in part as a result of his tactic of forced impressment and the savagery of his reprisals at Camargo and above all at Namikipa. 
um, the rape of the, the story of the rape of the women of Namikipa had spread throughout the Chihuahuan countryside. Many felt betrayed since Villa had impressed them into his army in order to fight the Americans, but instead forced them to fight the Carrancistas. So just like the muddying of the moral, uh, you know, the moral, what do you call it? The moral um, superiority is, isn't there, right? And that's like one of the main things that the revolutionaries have to have. Um, so, well, yeah. we've seen him, uh, you know, make emotional or, or, uh, sudden decisions. Like I'm going to shoot Obregon, <laughs> yeah. but then somebody talks to him and goes, you know, that's not a good idea. You had him yeah. for dinner. It'll look bad, you know? And then he goes, yeah, you're probably right. All right. I won't shoot him Yeah, this time. But you can't. So, yeah. So Villa's defeat is like also kind of political, moral, um, and Carranza, <laughs> Carranza figures that's pretty much it for Villa. Um, he also figures that he doesn't need the unions anymore. Yeah, so yeah, he saw just, that coming. <laughs> so he disbands uh, the Red Battalions. Uh, you remember the general who never wins, Pablo Gonzalez, he speaks out against all this labor agitation. He says, if the revolution fought against capitalist tyranny, it cannot now sanction proletarian tyranny. Um, they arrest some of the Casa de Obrero leaders, send them to prison. Uh, the Union Federation holds a Congress and, and, and enacts a general strike in protest of all of this, July 31st, 1916, including the Electricians Union. Um, the army breaks mm. up the strike right away, and the government announces death sentences for the leaders. Um, their leader, Ernesto, Ernesto Velasco, uh, he's arrested, he's in jail, he orders a return to work. Uh, the stri strike ends on August 2nd. Velasco is condemned to death. Um, he writes to Carranza, recanting, <laughs> recanting, and uh, eventually Carranza says, fine. Um, he commutes the sentence and releases him February 18th. Yeah. So when the unions finally do kind of reconstitute in 1919, they end up throwing their weight behind Obregón. <laughs> and, so, not, and not Carranza. And not Carranza. Yeah. Well, there's your olive branch to the conservatives. Yeah. And yeah. showing your true colors. So Carranza is able to call a constitutional convention in Mexico City. They draft the Constitution of 1917 and Carranza is elected president. So the Constitution recognized labor rights, which, you know, you have to take that with a grain of salt after we've you know, <laughs> shot uh, all the union leaders. Uh gave the government power to reform land tenure and to curtail the power of the church. So there's a little something for everybody in there. And you like Article 27. Well, Article 27 is really interesting because it's like it includes the whole um, ejido structure, which is like collective ownership of land, which becomes uh, which is realized decades later. Uh, but it's it's already in there in Article 27. And Gilly quotes someone who was there, Frank Tannenbaum, who says the Constitution was written by soldiers, not lawyers. They wanted to go further, but they were afraid of their own courage, of their own ideas. The soldiers found all of the learned men in the convention opposed to them. And so Article 27 was a compromise. Articles 27 and 123, which was the labor rights one, uh, were not loved by the uh, Americans who started what Gilly calls a protracted struggle against this document. 
Yeah, they're obviously afraid that <clears throat> you're going to combine nationalizing certain enterprises with handing them over to collective ownership, and that's just anathema. Yeah. But Carranza didn't implement any major reforms. <laughs> Are you surprised? <laughs> well, yeah, no. <laughs> Uh, no. So, yeah, there's a there is a president that's coming in the interwar period that we'll maybe talk about again. We may come back to Mexico in the interwar period because uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Uh, Lázaro Cárdenas and a lot of these reforms that are in the Constitution that aren't done are actually done in that time. So um, meanwhile, Zapata's uh, revolution is still going. It's uh, Gilly calls it the Morelos Commune. Um, Palafox, remember the guy who said it's yeah. better that some bourgeois should starve than millions of peasants. He writes the agrarian law for the Morelos Commune. It's a very radical document. Um, Gilly quotes it at length. I won't. But if you want to read all the details of the agrarian law in Morelos, you can. Um, there's an American agent who just it's a nice description of, of what he saw when he was hanging out in, in Morelos in, in 1915. He says here. Unlike in Mexico City, there was no busy display of confiscated luxury, no gleeful consumption of captured treasure, no swarm of bureaucrats leaping from telephone to limousine, only the regular measured round of native business. The days Zapata passed in his offices in an old rice mill at, a, at the northern edge of town, hearing petitions, forwarding them to Palafox in Mexico City or ruling on them himself, deciding strategy and policy, dispatching orders. In the evenings, he and his aides relaxed in the plaza, drinking, arguing about the plucky uh, cocks and fast and frisky horses, discussing the rains and prices with farmers who joined them for a beer. Zapata, as always, slowly smoking on a cigar. It's kind of a cool revolutionary image. Um, but here they come. <laughs> here they come to break up the commune. So Pablo Gonzalez, general, comes down with 30,000 men, takes the town of Cuernavaca, uh, May 2nd, 1916, and commits a whole bunch of atrocities. Uh, you thought Pancho Villa was bad. Um, <clears throat> the Carrancists entered Morelos like an occupation army. Like the federal troops of General Robles, they stole, burned, and pillaged wherever they passed. Hundreds upon hundreds of prisoners were shot, combatants and non-combatants, men and women, children, and old people. Whole towns flooded the roads to the high mountain villages where Gonzalez's troops could not reach them. Thousands of prisoners were sent to Mexico City, there to be deported as slave labor for the murderous Henneken plantations of Yucatan. In June 1916, Tlaltizapan fell with its munitions factory and greater booty into the hands of Gonzalez. The Carrancis there killed 132 men. 112 women and 42 children, a full-scale massacre. Emiliano Zapata and his remaining men left to organize resistance in the mountains. Morelos was occupied territory. So Gonzalez... Oh, I don't think you can uh, exculpate Carranza for this. Exactly. exactly. You, you don't send Gonzalez unless this is exactly what you intended. Exactly. So Gonzalez get, gets down to the business of plundering. Livestock, sugar, alcohol, sugar mill machinery, the contents of the munitions factory, furniture, all this could be and was carried off and sold. The inhabitants of Morelos were subjected to systematic persecution, murder, imprisonment, rape, exile, a whole wave of terror designed to subjugate them and facilitate the plunder. In this way, the new bourgeois army that emerged from the revolution inaugurated as one of its most constant practices, the Mexican 
people erected its own indelible monument to Carranza and his officers by coining the term to Carranzais, <laughs> Carranzear, as a synonym of to plunder. Wow. So they're going to come and Carranzaize the village. Uh, obviously, Gonzalez cancels all the land reform, but the Zapatistas have just started, right? This is, this is not, occupying the capital is not the end of a guerrilla war. It's the beginning of a guerrilla war. So Gonzalez revives the strategic hamlet thing, deportations, massacres, rapes, but under the pressure of just constant harassment by the Zapatista army. Um, remember the whole thing about how the Zapatistas are everywhere? <laughs> That's still the yeah. case in Morelos, yeah. right? So they're getting shot from every direction, you know, uh, and they get demoralized. Uh, and finally, they start they start to disintegrate. Gonzalez retreats from Morelos in 1917, and Zapata has the whole place back more or less by by then. Um, so they try to create a kind of a political structure. Uh, they call they call it this consultative center for revolutionary propaganda. There are village associations at schools. It's like, um, you know, Gilly's description of it is <laughs> reminds me a little bit of when King Arthur meets the anarcho syndicalist in uh, in the in the Monty Python movie, right? Know, where he talks about power is rotated over a series of committees, and and that that was that's kind of the structure that they have here in Morelos. Um, but here's the problem. Uh, Gilly says political isolation ends up doing what Pablo Gonzalez could not. So Zapatista leaders kind of start defecting to the amnesty. Um, and Zapata gets really angry at this. He starts executing them as traitors if he if he gets wind of people thinking of uh, taking the amnesty. Um, Zapata's, <laughs> one of his soldiers says, Zapata's natural taciturnity had changed into a somewhat neuraesthetic sullenness so that his guards were even afraid when he called them. So uh, Palafox, meanwhile, uh, also has his own downfall. He's accused of being a homosexual. Um, he ends up deserting to the government side. He calls others to desert, but nobody follows him. Uh, Gilly says his political ruination proved as total as the eclipse of his politics. Um, villagers are also getting tired of them. They are not supporting the revolutionary taxes being imposed on them. And sometimes when Zapata goes to mediate these conflicts, he actually sides with the villagers. He says, yeah, we shouldn't be taking taxes from these villagers, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, it's a lose-lose, right? Because you, yeah. you alienate the villagers, but then you're leaving the army hungry and whatnot. Um, so... Uh, towards the end, he writes a letter uh, supporting the Bolshevik Revolution, but um, you know, and he explains he explains a little bit of what he knows about the Bolshevik Revolution to his followers, but uh, it's not reciprocated. The the, the Europeans don't know anything about Mexico. Mm. Um, there's also an influenza epidemic, the post World War One influenza epidemic, about which I'm sure we'll talk <laughs> later. Uh, that also is devastating to Morelos. So Zapata is also, you know, in full downfall, downfall <coughs> by 1918. In 1919, he writes a letter to a politician accepting the idea of private enterprise and private land. Um, in 1919, March, he hears that Pablo Gonzalez, the general, is, is having a conflict with one of his support subordinates. 
Jesus Guajardo. So Zapata writes to Jesus Guajardo and says, listen, why don't you defect to my side? And they meet and Guajardo agrees as a as a gesture of um, goodwill. He shoots all the Zapat Zapatistas who joined his side. Uh, and when they arrange mm -hmm. to meet again on April 10th, 1919, Zapata arrives with his guard, with his bodyguards, and, and they're all just murdered. They're all shot, uh, ambushed. So his body is taken to Cuautla. Thousands are made to file past to see if he's really dead. Um, and that's pretty much the end of the Zapatistas, the Morelos Commune, which Gilly calls one of the finest and most deeply rooted <clears throat> Mexican revolutionary traditions. It continues to come back time and again. Um, Pancho Villa also agrees in 1920 to lay down arms uh, at a meeting at Sabinas in Coahuila, July 28, 1920. He's he gets permission uh, as part of the agreement. He's allowed a bodyguard of 50 men. The rest are incorporated into the army or retired with land. He gets a hacienda canutilla that he is to retire to, and he lives and works there for three years establishes a primary school, plays no role in politics, and he's assassinated at the end of those three years, June 20th, 1923, ordered by the government, Mobregón's mm. government. So. Yeah, there's a change. Uh, Carranza has been president. By 1920, Carranza's term as president is running out, and he can't run for re-election because they've instituted that, you know, one term, term no, no re-election. So Obregón expects to be the next president, but Carranza won't endorse him. Uh, that's not nice. Obregón <laughs> after, made all a, I've, after all, after I've, all done. I've done for you. Yeah, well, expecting Carranza's gratitude is also a little foolish. So Obregón made a formal announcement that he was going to run, and Carranza didn't like that. He was uh, apparently uh, stung. So he put forward his own candidate to succeed him, a virtually unknown civilian, the ambassador to the U.S., Ignacio Bonillas. Three ex-revolutionary generals now formed a triumvirate. This is astounding, like Roman history, and published their own manifesto, the plan of Agua Prieta. The, the three generals were Obregón, Plutarco Calles, Calles? Yes, and Adolfo de la Huerta. Now Carranza realizes his mistake. He's alienated, you know, the army generals. So he fled the capital with thousands of his supporters and they took all the gold in the treasury. So he headed for Veracruz, where he's been before, uh, planning to set up a government there. But there was some fighting at... Tlaxcala-Tongo on May 21st, and Carranza was killed. Uh, there's some suggestion that he might have been deliberately targeted. I'm not sure. So Congress appointed an interim president. They chose De La Huerta, and he urged Mexicans in exile to return home. He pardoned former Carranza supporters and even negotiated with Villa, and he's the one who got Villa and his army to surrender. He knew him personally. And that was where they got the negotiated settlement where Villa gets a hacienda and he can keep his bodyguard and, and whatever. Obregón strongly objected to this settlement. Oh. And he wrote to De La Huerta and other officials 
you know, protesting it. But over Obregon's objections, uh, Villa and De La Huerta came to the agreement, and that's where he lived until he was assassinated in 23. Now, I don't know if it's just Nama, Namakipa or Villa has an interesting reputation in Mexico. It's very mixed. He's not the national hero that you might expect. There are very few sites in Mexico named for him. In Mexico City, there's a subway station, uh, Metro División del Norte, which is honoring his revolutionary army, but not him directly. <laughs> I remember um, I remember being on the subway uh, when I was in Mexico City. I was I rode the subway everywhere and I remember that station and I I just assumed it had something to do with being in the north of the city or something, you know? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, it's the north division. <laughs> I wonder how many Mexicans know, you know, Villa's history or what they think of him. In 1920, there was a presidential election and Obregón won. In uh, 1923, as his term was coming to an end, he endorsed Plutarco Calles as his successor. And this, of course, made De La Huerta very angry. Was it payback for, you know, you made a deal with Villa when I told you not to? Uh, who knows? But De La Huerta denounced them both as corrupt and started a revolt. So here we go again <laughs> with revolutionary generals deciding, I, you know, I'm going to start it again. Uh, Catholics, conservatives, and a considerable, considerable number of army officers uh, joined in with De La Huerta. The army officers seemed to have, feel that, uh, to have felt that Obregón had reversed Carranza's policy of favoring the army first usually at the expense of, you know, the farmers and the workers. So they they joined in with De La Huerta. Uh, Obregón got help from the U.S., I guess, as the legitimate government. And he was still militarily smart. He had created an air force, really, you know, pretty smart. And he crushed the rebellion. But then he had to go back to the battlefield, uh, 1926 to 1927, to put down a rebellion led by the Yaqui people. Wow. And it's it's a bitter irony because Obregón first rose to military prominence, commanding Yaqui troops, and he had promised them land. And now he's out in the field crushing their rebellion. And although Obregón was uh, suspicious of the Catholic Church, he wasn't as anti-clerical as his successor uh, would be. And Calles, the, the new president, well, his policies would lead to the Cristero War, 1926 to 1929. So this revolution just doesn't want to end, and the fighting continues. So Obregón now begins to campaign for re-election. Uh, two of his oldest allies, Generals Gómez and Serrano, oppose the idea. So Serrano starts an anti-Obregón rebellion. Uh, he's assassinated. Uh, Gómez calls for an insurrection against Obregón, and he's soon killed as well. 
and Obregón yes, wins. Carranza, Madero, Obregón, Villa, Zapata, all assassinated, every single one of them. Yeah, Obregón won the 1928 presidential election, but he was assassinated on July 17th before he could assume power. So somebody, you know, either resented him personally or really, really believed in this no re-election stuff. <laughs> right. So one of the sources I read, Raymond Carr, asked the question, what was the Mexican Revolution about? Yeah. And to, to foreign observers, and sometimes to me, it looks as if uh, Madero's movement degenerated into meaningless fights between ambitious generals. Mm -hmm. But Carr does note several significant achievements. Uh, he says the rule of the strong man was replaced by a non-totalitarian one-party state. So oh, they, yay. <laughs> well, okay, wait. A lot of revolutions come full circle, right? Yeah. yeah. You're, you're, you start the revolution against uh, an absolute tyrant yeah. and then you come full circle and you end up with absolute tyranny again under somebody different well they started with porfirio diaz and they didn't end up with another porfirio diaz i'm i'm not saying it's immeasurably better <laughs> it's it's different they they didn't fall into that trap and the constitution of 1917 and especially article 27 which the u.s are still trying to get them to revoke, but, Ober <laughs> but Obregón refused, yeah. uh, established national control over all national, natural resources. Yeah. And in 1938, uh, the president was Cardenas, Cardenas and Cardenas, he, yeah. he expropriated British and American oil interests. Yeah. So two things that came out of the revolution, economic nationalism and a distrust of the U.S., the land reform, well, Carranza <laughs> didn't do it. Obregón did redistribute almost a million hectares, but it was obviously not enough. I mean, the Yaqui uprising plainly proves that it wasn't enough. Yeah, we're talking about, you know, million, that's a thousand square kilometers or something, right? I think, yeah. I think it's, I think we're talking about 1.5 million square kilometers that need to be redistributed. So it's not, uh, it's not not even a drop in the in the ocean. Um, so yeah, on the land question, Gilly says we may therefore conclude that the key question of the revolution did not receive an answer. Yeah, um, and that's not unusual for revolutions. Right. Uh, Carr was writing in the 1960s. Okay. And he called Mexico the most stable country in Latin America. Well, look at that. And he's and he thought it was because they had had their revolution. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Gilly's conclusion is also that it's not useless. So Gilly and Carr seem to converge a little bit on this. So Gilly says, you know, look, the revolution had four phases, right? Overthrowing Porfirio and replacing him with Madero, then Madero versus Zapata, then Huerta versus Carranza, Villa and Zapata, and then Carranza and Obregón versus Villa and Zapata. So um, you know, each stage uh, ended with the radicals kind of getting crushed. Um, but the peasants, he, he says, you know, the peasants were brought onto the historical stage and kind of got, got this confidence that they could do things even if they couldn't win. And people, mm -hmm. uh, the elite also developed a, a healthy fear of the peasants, I think, <laughs> um, you know, that they couldn't just 
completely blow off the peasants or count on them to to be passive. Um, demographically, economically, the revolution was, of course, damaging. Uh, the Mexico's population fell from 15.2 to 14.3 million during the revolution. I guess mm -hmm. everybody's population was suffering because of the war, because of World War One and influenza. Mm -hmm. um, Mexico became an oil country during the revolution. So exports of oil were 200,000 pesos, and they went up to 5.516 million pesos. Um, the contribution of oil to the GDP went from 33 million to 1.7 billion. Uh, so a huge uh, increase, multiple orders of magnitude increase in oil production and the importance of oil to Mexico's uh, economy and, and role in the world. Um, but Gilly concludes, you know, if history were just a matter of economic statistics, it would not be far from the truth to say that virtually nothing changed in the course of the Mexican Revolution and that all things considered, there was no revolution. Um, even modernization was more something that happened under Porfirio Diaz than under the revolution. Um, but then Gilly asks, was that useless? No. He concludes that it was not useless. And then he says, the Mexican people underwent a hitherto unprecedented experience, feeling themselves to be the subject and no longer the mere object of history. They stored up a wealth of experience and consciousness that altered the whole country as it is lived by its inhabitants, set the stage for the anti-colonial and socialist uprisings that span the 20th century and still reverberate in the many movements for justice and freedom today. So it's a it's a triumph of the triumph of the human spirit kind of uh kind of a conclusion yeah i mean for all of its dismal aspects you know the revolutionaries continually turning on each other with their private feuds <laughs> and the use of the army to you know pacify revolutionary villages and towns despite all of that it it's a more successful revolution than many that i've studied Right. They did not go full yep. circle back to a yep. tyrant. Uh, the peasants and to some degree the workers. Uh, yeah, they kind of felt their power. They realized, you know, we we don't have to just take it. We can yeah. make change. And then the economic nationalism, that's got to count as as a win. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so I shouldn't be that depressed. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll go back and read about Angelis then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But yeah, so our final episode, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this is like the end of our Mexican revolution, but there is kind of an epilogue or a coda. Is that called a coda, Dave? Yeah. It's a coda. Kind of Final composition, final notes. Yeah. So there's a coda where like Friedrich Katz wrote this big book about foreign intervention and the secret war on Mexico, it's called. And uh, I've been reading it. I'm about halfway. And uh, there's just a lot of interesting anecdotes about the Kaiser, you know, all these characters that we're going to be coming right back to. Um, Kaiser Wilhelm, you know, the British nobility, uh, you know, the American president, Wilson, uh, all the American military officers that would later go to World War One. So uh, I think there's a lot of there's several stories that I think I'm going to tell from that from that book and then we'll we'll move back where are we going after that uh we're going to look at some social uh stuff in europe uh suffragists and pacifists 
Okay, so we're not going to be hanging out with these royal, these incestuous royals. <laughs> we'll get back to them after a few, <laughs> a few episodes. Sounds good. 